our lovely Meryl. Yay. <laughs> oh, applause. Yeah. Bring it out. Thank you. Lovely. I have got enough water. Thank you. Well, I was um, asked to do a number of things. And when I started trying to work out whether I could cover everything that had been sort of tossed out as, well, people are really interested in this and they're really interested in that. I thought, well, that sounds like a 12-week lecture series, actually. So how long have you got? <laughs> uh, however, I decided, well, I'll do what I do and we'll see how it goes. And uh, with a little bit of luck, we might have some time for some questions and you know, all the things that I didn't touch on that you really, really wanted me to touch on, you might have a chance to ask me about or um, throw an email at someone through the week and get me to do it next week instead or something like that. So what I'm looking at doing, you know, if you get me, you get narrative, okay? You, you get something about how does the story work and what does it look back to and what's it doing in its, in its entirety at the moment? So I want to do a little bit of that this week. And then next week, I remember uh, back when I was here and I, I was just saying, I worked out it was just after Easter. Anyone remember back just after Easter? It was a long time ago. It was that brief little moment when we actually could go out and do things before we snapped back into lockdown again. And um, I, I said, are there any particular narratives or things that you'd like to hear me tell stories about? And one of the ones that came was about Mary. And I didn't get to Mary. Um, I was sort of busy concentrating on other people. But I thought, well, now is the time. So next week, I'm going to do a little bit about Mary. Um, because we tend to either know nothing or too much of the wrong sort of thing about Mary. So I think she's just a really worth, you know, really worth digging into a little bit of what we do know about Mary or, you know, what sort of gathered around her and why. So that'll be next week. So this week, I just want to think about, um, and one of the things that I was going to start off with was the beginning of Luke's gospel, uh, mainly because it's shorter than the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And um, I have listened to the podcast of last week where Rod read so beautifully all of those names in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, and I'm darned if I'm going to do it this week. So <laughs> if you didn't hear that, if you weren't here last week, get on and listen to the podcast because it was um, taking one for the team, offering to do that. So Luke's Gospel starts like this, and I think it's absolutely fascinating. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as are handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. I love um, Luke setting out to write an orderly account. It makes you sort of wonder whether he actually had some doubts about just how orderly those other accounts were uh, and whether there was a bit of tongue-in-cheek there. But that, that sense of eyewitnesses, the fulfilment of uh, the events... Um, the, the culmination of something, just in a few brief words, he manages to point back 
to a whole raft of things that have gone before, bring them into the moment and eyewitnesses, into, into something um, like suddenly reading a novel that's been written in the present tense through the eyes of the person who's, who's narrating it, which always gives a, a really strong sense of immediacy. So there is something about Luke saying lots and lots of things um, are in our past understanding and we really need to try and make sense of these, but they now come into something that's really immediate and means something in our lives at the moment and it's about truth. And that word truth um, has so many meanings and I, and I think, you know, Rod's really touched on that beautifully with the idea of mythos. Uh, what, not just what happened, but what is always happening. What is it in this that we need to know so we can live? Um, and so when think about narrative flows. When we read for the sense of the whole narrative flow, first of all, Beginnings are really important. I, I'm, I'm sure I banged on about that back in, um, you know, whenever it was. I was here last, and I'm sure you will remember every word that came out of my mouth. From, does anyone even remember the first half of the year this year? No, of course you don't. So anyway, I, I do say quite often, make sure you take notice of the beginnings of biblical books, the beginnings of the Bible, you know, chapter Genesis 1, Beginnings give us the lens through which we're meant to read what's coming. So basically they say, here's, here's the lens that's going to focus. So when you're reading on, just keep going back to that beginning. What is it that it's telling you that makes you remember what the main points are, um, what's going on? So the birth narratives in Luke and Matthew are those lenses and, of course, the narrative was not written for us in the 21st century, surprise, surprise, you know, stating the bleedingly obvious here. It was written for the people who were struggling in Luke's community and Matthew's community and Mark's community and John's community to make sense of the chaotic worlds that they were living in which included all of their memories and knowledge of their own scriptures and story and how, how fragmented that had become with numerous changes of world power that had just, just broken into their own narrative and, and um, with, with massive hobnail boots. And, and at this stage, it's the Roman Empire's hobnail boots that they're, they're grappling with. But they'd been through various levels of that, the Greek one go back behind that, the Persian one go back behind that, the Babylonian one go back behind. Trying to make sense of how this narrative might still flow on when there'd been these great fractures. So all of that needs to be in our reading of it. Uh, so we're not reading uh, the little fragments that we tend to get in, in church readings and things like that. We're not reading those little bits as if that bit by itself has every bit of what we need to know. It's always part of a big story and it might be a small part of that story and it might just be referring and touching lightly on themes from those stories. 
So what are the themes that Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel are setting up by their beginnings that we will then need to keep a close eye on as we read on through their whole gospel? And why do Mark and John not, not, you know, why, why are they not even vaguely interested in birth narratives? So something's, something's different in the different communities and we don't necessarily know what it is. You know, we, we're not there. Nobody was carefully writing a story about that particular community at the time. We might come up with a few um, possibilities of what's going on. Like Matthew. Matthew starts off with that genealogy. And in that genealogy, we've got, um, you know, carefully, carefully composed of 14 generations from Abraham to David, David to um, Joseph and, and, you know, well, whatever. I can never remember numbers, but it's something like that. It's actually written in there. I still can't remember, you know, how many generations there are. And there are those five women mentioned, you know, who, who stick out like beacons on a hillside because... They're not the women you would expect to be mentioned. They're not Rachel and Leah and Sarah and Rebecca and, you know, the great matriarchs, the mothers of the tribes. They're Tamar, whose story I, I told earlier this year. They're um, uh, Ruth, um, Rahab, got out of order there, Rahab, then Ruth, um, the wife of Uriah, in other words, Bathsheba, but mentioned by her husband's name to make sure that there is no getting away from the disgrace to David of her story. You know, by the time she has Solomon, who's the one who's mentioned, she is actually David's wife, but Matthew calls her the wife of Uriah. And so he's making very, very clear in there the disgraceful side of the story rather than covering it up. So, you know, why? Why these women? And if you read through, um, they're, they're foreigners. They, they have all of these sexual peccadilloes going on. Um, Tamar, if you remember her story, um, the foreign daughter-in-law whose, whose husband dies, um, the next son who's supposed to take her as a wife carefully uh, refuses to impregnate her. She gets sent back in disgrace to her, her father's household and then um, uses her native wit and wisdom to trick her father-in-law into impregnating her to carry on his own family name which he wasn't paying any attention to. And when he finds out, he ends up saying, you're more righteous than I am. Now, read the story, fabulous story. Uh, Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute uh, who lives on the walls of the city and who um, is the one who has the wit and wisdom to hide the, Can uh, hide the um, Israelite spies and then trick the king into chasing off in the wrong direction and then negotiating on behalf of her extended family a covenant with these people who are going to come in and be the conquerors so that her family will be safe. In other words, she acts as the head of the family and goes on. And, and so each of these stories have something in them about the wit and wisdom and loyal, loyal love of these foreign women which leads us to Mary. 
Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that next week, but why does Matthew lead with that? What's going on in his congregation, do you think? It's got to be something about the place of women and the place of foreigners. Um, because otherwise, why? Why bother? You know, there are lots of other stories he could have told by mentioning other names, but he chooses these ones. And then goes into a birth narrative where the, the people who come and see Jesus, who are led to Jesus by this heavenly sign of the star, are foreigners. There's something going on that Matthew is trying to say about the place of the Son of God come to earth and what his mission is going to be. And remember, the Gospel of Matthew ends in go to all the nations, the sending to all the nations. So there's no surprise that we start the way we do because of where we're heading, which is get out there. It's not about sitting in here, you people, and feeling safe because you've got it all to yourselves. And Matthew's speaking to Jewish Christians. He's saying, get out there. And if we read, for example, um, Acts 11, I think it is, where the, um, uh, the vision has to come to Peter to, to convince him that it's all right to go and speak to the Macedonians, speak to foreigners. And God sends the, the sheep down with all the unclean animals in it and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, you know, never an unclean thing has passed my lips. And God says... Don't call anything unclean that I have clean. And it ends up with Peter going and standing in front of the elders in Jerusalem and arguing the point with them and them finally having to accept that maybe it was a true vision and this is a prophetic word they need to listen to, like a word that's actually confronting them with their insularity. So, so this is a theme that's you know, running through the early church. We're seeing it in other places, not just in the birth narratives. So, Luke. Luke starts off with this eyewitness, this um, fulfilment, the, the fulfilment of something that's been going on before. And Matthew also, full of lots of ideas that prophecy has been fulfilled. What on earth do they mean by that? Because if we read through um, what often are sort of seen as prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament, they're not necessarily pointing to someone like Jesus. In fact, they're not at all pointing to someone like Jesus. They're pointing to figures who were seen as being fulfilled at many different times. Um, in, in the Essene community, the community uh, at Qumran, that the Dead Sea Scrolls um, bear witness to, they, they saw a number of different Messiahs, sometimes priestly ones, sometimes uh, more political ones. Uh, they didn't think that there was one particular person it was all leading to, um, and there wasn't a sense that, right, he's come, that's it. It was a, you know, who else, who was who going to be brought in to, to save us? So these, these leaders of their early churches are trying to trawl through their own scriptures to find where the traction is that makes sense of these, these happenings in their own time, post 
post the death of Jesus, post uh, crucifixion, and post being kicked out of the synagogue. Um, some of them post the destruction of Jerusalem. So trying to create an orderly account is not just about, right, let's see if we can get a timeline of Jesus' life. It's an orderly account of how do we understand if we look back that God has been present in our history? How do we understand that God is still present despite these great um, you know, fractures that I talked about earlier? And how do we understand that God continues in our desperate little communities to be faithful and present and that there is a story that we'll keep going that we are part of? Does that make sense? Um, so what we then have, of course, are a whole lot of stories which um, have their own um, particular flows and understandings. And they're, they're made up of the things we call, um, when I say we, biblical scholars call type scenes, which is a scene that you're going to come across time and time again. You think, oh, I haven't read this before. Oh, no, that was so-and-so. Why does it sound a lot like that? Uh, one of the ones that uh, I quite often do some work with is meetings at wells. I can't remember whether I mentioned these last time or not, and if I did, you probably don't remember anyway. So uh, just briefly, the idea of a man coming to a well, um, unable to get the water, a woman comes, gets the water up for him. He either, you know, fights off... Um, marauders for her or helps her with something or other, and it ends up with a betrothal. Uh, they happen a number of times on the way through. And um, just the last one in the Bible is um, Jesus' meeting of the Samaritan woman at the well, which is very much part of that type scene repertoire and gives a whole different meaning to... Um, that meeting then is often taken up by preachers who like to concentrate on how sinful the woman is. Whereas if you take it as part of the type scene, you realise that she's actually a woman who has a great deal to offer uh, and that there's a kind of betrothal between uh, heaven and earth happening through that interaction where she, in her faith, recognises that Jesus is the fount of living water and goes and tells her her village. And so the story of Jesus starts to be spread. So the, the uh, type scene that's happening in Luke and Matthew is the annunciation of a birth, usually to a barren mother. There are a number of them throughout um, uh, the Old Testament, and they have fairly typical bits. Um, there's the appearance of an angel or a messenger or a man of God, uh, sort of get named variously at different times. The response is one of fear. Um, and Mary is quite unusual here. Mary is perplexed rather than afraid. Did you notice the difference uh, between Zachariah's response to the appearance, to the Annunciation, which was the typical, he was very afraid, and Mary's, where she's perplexed, not afraid, just, well, who wouldn't be perplexed? Um, the angel or the messenger or whoever it is always then says, do not be afraid. And if you ever hear anyone say that, be very afraid. Because <laughs> whatever's going to happen, it's going to change your life. 
uh, they are then given the divine message. They then object, and so you know, um, she can't. She's too old. She's too this, that, and the other. Um, Sarah and Abraham, should I have pleasure now that I'm past the age of bearing children? All of these things that come up. Um, and then they're given a sign to guarantee what's going to happen. So that's a type scene. We know that it's going to go like it goes because they're the elements that are in all of them. But where the narrative art comes in are the little differences, like... Zachariah's response compared with Mary's response. And we are meant to sit up and take notice when we read Mary's after Zachariah's. There is something in the telling of it. You know, the, the um, angel still says to her, do not be afraid. Well, that was redundant. <laughs> she wasn't afraid. She's just confused, as you would be. And Zachariah, uh, the, the, the enunciation to Zachariah in Luke is very, very similar in many ways to the Annunciation to, um, of the birth of Samson, which is well worth reading. Go back to Numbers... I actually made a note of it here because it's so interesting. Uh, numbers 6. Oh, sorry, sorry, Judges, Judges 11. Um, Judges 13. I've got it here. Um, Nazarites are in number 6. Um, Judges 13. Because the angel appears, or man of God as it is there, appears to the wife of Manoah. And it's a fabulous story because when the wife of Manoah, who accepts everything that's told her, goes back and tells her husband, he doesn't believe her because she's only a woman, one assumes, and he wants to hear it for himself. So he says, you know, try and get this angel to appear again. So she goes out into the fields and the angel appears to her. So she goes and gets her husband, and the angel only talks to her. And he says, how will we know what, what's happening? And, and the angel finally says to him, do what she says. <laughs> it's just precious. I absolutely adore it. So we've got a little bit of that happening here with um, Zachariah not able to really accept terribly what's going on for all sorts of very good reasons. I mean, would you? Um, he, he's, he's very human, is Zechariah. Um, but then Mary comes and we are shown how much more. And, and in a lot of the stories that we've got, there's, there's one person who does what most people would do and there's nothing wrong with that, but then there's someone who does so much more and we've seen what it means to go over and above. So, so there, there are the wonderful. So these um, annunciation scenes, and again, they're all quite different. You know, you go back to Matthew, you've got all of those elements, but in Matthew, the annunciation is to Joseph, as they often are in the Hebrew Bible, apart from the wife of Manoah. Um, and it's Joseph who needs to make the decisions, it's Joseph who needs to do what what should be done. But Joseph, I think, in many ways, picks up um, the elements of, for example, Boaz in the, in the genealogy, where Boaz is also the sort of pillar of the community who goes over and above. You know, um, Joseph could have divorced Mary. He could have quietly, you know, done whatever he wanted to do. But he, he's going to do it all carefully, and then when the angel appears, he takes her as his wife. He goes over and above. Um, 
Luke decides to have these two annunciation scenes, and Luke, by the way, I think is really tongue-in-cheek with his first um, beginning here, because who does he start off with? He starts off with the whole family tree of Zachariah and Elizabeth. And Zachariah and Elizabeth are the right people. They come from the right families. They're on the right side of the track. They're priestly families. They're, they're lineage is impeccable and so who's going whose birth is going to be announced surely the messiah because this is exactly the people we would expect the messiah to come from instead of which it's not the messiah is announced to this young unmarried girl mary so right there at the beginning in subtle ways we're not told they're the right people, but they, it's not them. Uh, we're not told she's the wrong person, but it's her. They just put the two stories side by side. Build up our expectations and then just quietly put the rug out from underneath our feet. And basically, Luke's saying this is what Jesus is going to do. Pull the rug out from underneath people's feet all the way through. Because Luke then goes on to have women at really key places in the gospel. Um, there, there's a lot of the narratives of, of the women who follow Jesus, the women who support Jesus and his disciples. It's, it's women who pay for everything that's got, you know, happening, who, who um, keep Jesus and his disciples um, uh, on the road. And they're named, they're named carefully. So Luke really has this sense, you know, and you do wonder what is going on in Luke's community. And we certainly know that in the early church, um, at times, women were seen very much as part of, you know, the uh, equal leading of the churches. And then there were times when there were um, uh, men, and particularly from the, you know, the, the Jewish community that they came out of, but also from the Greco-Roman world, who would want to shut the women up and make sure that they're being subservient to the men. Well, Luke is having none of that. And Matthew is having none of that. They're trying to, I think, rewrite a balance, an imbalance, rebalance an imbalance that's happening in their communities. So when we read these two narratives, we really do have to take notice of what they're telling us that's quite specific within the techniques and the understood um, uh, motions of storytelling of the time that people would have expected to hear. You know, they would have expected to hear a birth narrative about someone who's special because that's what everybody had. And they would have expected it to sound like this and have these elements in it. So what do they slip in along with that to have us go, oh, what do I need to take note of of that? so that when I go further on into the gospel, I think, oh, yeah, that's right, I'll set up for that all the way through. I, I needed to be listening carefully because that was telling me that when I read this bit, take note. So, for example, Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman, um, who we're told very clearly in, uh, that he, he's gone into the area of Syrophoenicia, uh, which, um, you know, a place that Jews didn't go, really. And this woman comes and asks him to um, heal her daughter. And Jesus says, you know, isn't the bread for the children 
you don't throw it to the dogs. And she says, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. And I love to hear the echoes of the women in his genealogy speaking through her and maybe just giving him a gentle clip over the year. You know, there are many different ways of reading that story um, and there are many different interpretations that people have come up with. The one that I quite like is that his grandmothers are reaching out and just going, you know, just, just, just listen to her, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, anyway, maybe not, but uh, certainly Matthew and the other gospel writers who, who are telling that story are giving a little bit of a clip over the ear to the people in their congregations <laughs> who are listening. I think I need to stop because we can sort of keep going um, forever, but I do just want to leave you with the sense that these stories are being told for purposes, and the purposes are not to present biographies that are historically accurate. They're for the narrative flow that is trying to reach back into the past and bring forward the promises so that the orderly account says we believe God has always been present in our story, even in its fractures, and that what's happening now that we're witnessing and that we're trying to make sense of is part of that flow and that's going to go into the future and we have to work out how we make sense of that so we can part, be part of living towards that. Uh, so we don't get too stuck in the details here and there and think, oh, but, but, but. And we Just remember that it's all part of something that's supposed to be sweeping us down this wonderful river of hope and... and um, um, promise and future opening up of something that we we're still trying to imagine. Um, any any quick questions or comments or just other things that you wish I'd covered? But but as I said, do feel free to email um, Rod or Tamson or Shane through the week, and they can chuff to me any questions you'd like me to have a look at next week. Yep, yep. Oh, look, no, no one knows for sure. There, there is a theory that he was a physician, um, but there are a lot of people who would say, well, how can we possibly, possibly know? We don't even know whether he was Jewish or Gentile. There's um, a sort of people think that he was Gentile, but if you actually, you know, there's, there's, if he was Gentile, he certainly had a very good working knowledge of the Jewish systems because one of the things in his um, orderly account is the time and, and the importance of his sense of eyewitness that we are watching something unfold that is amazing is his detail about um, the Jewish rites and customs and things like that and if I went into all of those we would be here forever but so so we don't know you know, they're educated guesses, and that's about as good as it gets. So you imagine Luke however you need to imagine Luke. <laughs> okay, well, you know, lots of lots of chance to um, sit and sit and talk afterwards, uh, or walk around and talk. I, I really don't mind. What we will do now is move into a time of just sharing communion together before we finish. 
So, um, in a minute, I'll invite people to come and um, a couple of people to take a, a plate and, and share it around. I do just uh, want to hold as we come into this moment of sharing this part of the narrative that there is something about, and I find incredibly compelling, about the bookends of Jesus' life, as the Gospel writers tell them, which is that they, uh, they begin and end with intense vulnerability. Intense vulnerability. There is nothing more vulnerable than a newborn baby. And, and I loved the image that Rod had up of the child with the... Um, you know, muck on its head, and I, used, I was a midwife at one stage of my life, and you, you see these these little things slither out, and you just can't believe they can survive what they survive. And to think of um, that being what these two gospels begin with is a newborn baby, and that they all end up on a cross. Uh, there is something incredibly compelling about that. It just upends all expectations. It upends all uh, claims to political power. It upends all um, all of our own senses of um, self-determination and pride and all sorts of things like that and really brings us to confront but also accept and love our own vulnerability. And I think that is the wonderful thing about meeting around the table of the Lord every week is that it says we come as the vulnerable people we are and we meet the God who knows what that's like and who loves that within us so much that that God was willing to come into the world as that fragile baby and to go through a horrible death on the cross out of love and out of absolute solidarity. And so as we take the bread together, um, and if you have something around that you can use, um, it's all very difficult these days, but we can at least take the bread together, just to remember that as it breaks, so all of us break so easily and so many of us are broken in various times and ways, but we are not alone in that brokenness. We are deeply, profoundly accompanied and loved in our most fragile and broken. Let me just give thanks. Our God, we bring our own stories as we hear the stories of the Gospels. We find the places where they repel us, where they attract us. Help us to hear what's going on below them so that we can listen more deeply to what's going on deeply within ourselves. We thank you for stories of fragility that show us that we are loved and accepted even in our own most fragile moments. As we take this bread and we remember the particularity of that night on which Jesus was betrayed by his friend and handed over to be killed, that all of our feelings of betrayal, whether we've been betrayed or we ourselves have betrayed, may be taken into your infinite love and held and transformed into something 
life-giving and nourishing. Amen.